Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hello, everyone. This is Connor Boyack, standing in for Lee Lonsberry. I'm president of Libertas Institute and excited to be with you. Now, you can't invite me to host a radio show and not have me talk about some controversial topics. So we have quite the lineup today. Very excited to spend the time with you, digging in with some awesome guests to talk about a lot of stuff that matters and a lot of stuff that's going to be happening soon on Utah's Capitol Hill. Our organization has been around for a few years working with legislators on quite a number of bills, and so there's a lot happening um, in the upcoming legislative session. First, I want to talk about a trend that has been happening uh, that we've seen, especially in the past few weeks with this recent election. Every single state that has uh, considered the legalization or decriminalization of drugs uh, passed it in the recent election. What does that mean for Utah? What does the future of Utah look like, or frankly, the whole country? Let's turn now to a clip talking about what happened, and we'll do some analysis. Just 10 years ago, pot was illegal in all 50 states. Now it's legal in a third of them. New Jersey, Montana, Arizona, all legalizing recreational marijuana use. Medical marijuana is now legal in Mississippi, and South Dakota became the first state where voters authorized both medicinal and recreational pot. Oregon, where pot's already legal, approved a measure making the therapeutic use of psychedelic mushrooms okay. It's also decriminalized possession of small amounts of all street drugs, including cocaine, meth, even heroin. Sherry Preston, ABC News. So this is an interesting clip, right? Uh, Utah is now surrounded by states, with the exception of Idaho, that have legalized uh, recreational, as it's called, uh, marijuana or cannabis. Uh, I will take exception with uh, that reporter calling it pot. Uh, that is kind of a pejorative and antiquated name. This is cannabis, and it helps a lot of people. Uh, Utah voters know this. Uh, recently passed Proposition 2 in Utah to legalize medical cannabis. And on the next segment, we're going to be talking with Desiree Hennessy from the Utah Patients Coalition about what's to come for Utah's medical cannabis law. But opening with this news sets the stage for some of the stuff that we're going to talk about. Because when we talk about drug policy, we're not just talking about the drugs. In fact, we're talking about the government's response to drugs. At the top of the next hour, we're going to be talking about a recent shooting that just happened a couple months ago and use of force and no-knock warrants and how so many of these responses uh, from the government, from police, involve drugs. Uh, we're going to be talking about what that means for our criminal justice system and how we might reform it in a way that honors individual liberty but still uh, pursues justice and protects people's rights. This is a very important topic. Because in decades past, it's been very easy to dismiss the issue and, you know, uh, criminalize drugs. But what we're seeing is that our criminal justice system is bogged down with people who heavily use drugs, often because of underlying mental health problems. 
And it's no longer really seen as the right balance and the right approach to have such a heavy-handed response to activity that actually needs some kind of different support. People need help. And it was interesting, right, in that news clip to hear about, uh, in Oregon, the decriminalization not just of marijuana, but of basically all street drugs. Why would they be so crazy? Now, you know, Utah is certainly not Oregon, and we can uh, be thankful in many respects for that. But why is that important? Well, look at Portugal, right? Portugal has done this for many years. They shifted the drug war, as it's called, uh, into a support system for people's uh, mental and physical health where they decriminalize drugs and people can now come out of the shadows. People can get, can get help that they need with the addiction. They don't fear getting locked in jail, right? They're not going to recidivate. In other words, go to jail, be released, commit another crime to support a drug habit that they do in the shadows because, you know, uh, you know what they want to do is illegal. So then they go back to jail and they repeat the cycle. This is a very interesting topic for Utah because we've now dipped our toe in the water with medical cannabis, but the next question is, what's to come? So many of you might know that our organization was one of the leading organizations working on the legalization of medical cannabis with Proposition 2. And one of the questions that we were often asked during that campaign was, well, what about recreational marijuana? Now, I don't like the word recreational, right? Because it's not always recreational. Sometimes it's medical and it's just not on the approved list of, of you know, uh, medical uses. Uh, not everyone who uses it does it simply to get high recreationally. And so how we often frame this question is, it's one thing to say, I don't support doing drugs, you know, using drugs is bad. And these are important messages, especially for the kids. However, it's another question when it comes to public policy, right? Is it right that if someone is, is using, we'll keep using cannabis as an example, in their basement, let's say, without anyone knowing, is it right that the government should bang down their door and, you know, separate them from their family? Maybe they have to lose their job and their gun rights and everything else just because, you know, in the four walls of their own home, they're choosing to engage in a certain, you know, substance use. Well, alcohol is legal. Alcohol wrecks all kind of lives. It's, it's very dangerous. Why in the world would we criminalize some substances and not others? It's a very interesting question, you see. And so Utah is going to have to come to grips with the fact that, as that news clip mentioned, a lot of other states are going down this path. And it's one thing to say, we don't like that, we don't support that. It's another thing to say, is it right that we send the police after these people? We're going to be talking about that in the next hour, about what does it mean for the use of force by police? There's been a big conversation this summer, right, with riots and protests and, and all the like about police use of force. Is it right that we have what are called no-knock warrants, where police literally bang people's doors in, in the middle of the night, and, and people die as a result of this because of the war on drugs. You know, the support for the war on drugs is, and I think rightly so, declining because people are recognizing that there are deeper issues at hand. If people are, are abusing substances, it's not just because they're druggies. It's because they've got underlying mental health issues or social problems that have to be dealt with. Can we reframe the conversation and our system here in Utah and elsewhere? to provide people the support they need to get them out of those dependencies, to get them the support that's going to have a longer lasting effect rather than sending them to jail or sending them to prison only to have that happen time and time again. This is an imperative question because, again, it's not just about the drugs. There is an outgrowth of public policy problems that are created by how we approach drugs. You don't need to say that drugs are okay or you don't need to, to support the use of them to also recognize 
that there might be a different approach with how the government should handle these things. In fact, the war in drugs uh, on drugs has failed, right? Countless sums of money have been spent, lives wasted in pursuit of this so-called war. And we have to question, like we are with you know the war in Afghanistan and, and the Middle East, we have to question if this is the right approach. So I'm excited to unpack this issue with you. We have a lineup of awesome guests uh, coming ahead to talk about all of the different issues at play and more as we get into that analysis. So stick with us after the break. You're listening to KSL News Radio. We look forward to the debate on the other side of the break. Welcome back to KSL. This is your guest host for the day, Connor Boyack, president of Libertas Institute, talking about, as is common for me at least, some controversial and fun issues. We invite you to weigh in on the conversation through the Utah Community Credit Union text line. You can text your comments today to 57500. Well, in the last segment, we set the stage for what we're talking about for the next few segments. We're talking about the war on drugs. We're talking about cannabis reform. We're talking about what these things mean for Utah. I'm joined now on the line by Desiree Hennessy, the director of the Utah Patients Coalition, which is the group that led the charge for Proposition 2, legalizing medical cannabis in Utah. Desiree, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Connor, for having me. So what's been your perspective on on this topic, right? A lot of other states have been legalizing medical cannabis or cannabis in general. Uh, Talk to me about kind of this trend that you feel. Obviously, you've been paying attention to this, you know, forecasted out maybe five, ten years. What does the country look like? Are are minds really changing on this topic? I think, yeah, I think hearts and minds are changing here. And I think with every state that does it, I mean, I personally believe that Utah was a state that everybody watched. Once Utah, you know, became, uh, started to allow their patients to use medical cannabis, I think a lot of states were watching and they all have kind of jumped on board. I think that we are going to see more change. I would obviously love to see change federally and so we can study this medication and, uh, and allow more widespread use. But I do see that, you know, in the next five, 10 years, I, I have hope that we are going to be able to, um, use it more broadly in, in all states. And the, the federal issue you mentioned for our listeners is that cannabis for a long time has uh, been listed on Schedule One of drugs, which means that in the federal government's opinion, there's no accepted medical use of cannabis, which just shows how backwards, outdated, and uh, silly, <laughs> I'll, I'll politely right. say, that the federal government is on this issue because clearly there's medical benefit. Clearly there are people benefiting. Desiree, would you mind actually just share us a little vignette, your own story? You're you're a, a patient advocate, but what's your connection to this issue just to set the stage for why the federal government is so wrong in making that claim? Right. So I started with medical cannabis five or six years ago. Um, my son was having extreme nerve pain. He's extremely medical medically fragile, and we had tried every single medication that they had offered us with zero results. The only thing they were having is that he would stop breathing. He, they, they were causing a lot of neurological damage. And, uh, you know, the thought of, of cannabis in the beginning was uh, almost seemed nonsense to me until I began to meet other patients that were using it and, and having so much success with the same type of pain that he was having. Anyway, fast forward a couple of years, and, you know, we legalized it, so I, I I started helping um, to legalize it and uh, and talking to legislators and everything. And in, be- in the beginning, yeah, doors were shut in our face, and they wanted nothing to do with even this topic. Um, when we passed the ballot initiative, um, I started using it on my son, and 
and for that that year that was the first Christmas that we'd went to go see the lights because he could ride in a car without pain and um, nobody wants to hear it called a miracle drug right but in our family it's truly been a miracle for him to just have a life that's free from pain and and every every year or every month we're we're using less not more and so it's been it's been a miracle for us and not only for you, but for many other families who joined you in the Utah Patients Coalition in pushing for Proposition 2, the voters passed it. The legislature uh, kind of gave a stamp of approval to the, the modified version that had a few extra guardrails on it that satisfied some of the, the critics. Uh, we've now had a functioning mm-hmm. program. Talk to me about your perspective of where things currently stand with Utah's medical cannabis law. Right now, I still see, um, well, first of all, what we're not seeing is we're not seeing the door shut in our face anymore. Um, anybody that uh, has any any stake or understanding in the medical cannabis program in Utah is sitting at the same table. We're talking it out. We're coming to good agreements. Um, the battle is, for the most part, over. I mean, we're still working on things, but we're we're working together, and and we're always having forward mem- momentum here. And we have a plan, and we have a plan that can't be taken away. As, as it is now, or, or most likely won't. But um, we, if I, if I'm, I, I do see things that I would like to change. I do have conditions that I would like to add. Um, I do talk to a lot of patients that call me that fall without, you know, outside of the qualified medical conditions list. And so they have anxiety or depression and they're using it, mm-hmm. um, but they're still having to, to do it in secret. And I would like to see those added. I would especially like to see sleep disturbances added because I've had patients that, that you know, they're, they're having to go through the Compassionate Use Board, which is board set up so they can uh, approve conditions that are outside the qualified conditions list. And, and they, just have, they just can't sleep. They just have insomnia. And it's something so simple, and it's such a, 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 large, a longer process to be able to use it now. Uh, so I'd love to add those. Um, I'd love to see more research. I'd love to uh, have, you know, we, I was talking with the university hospital the other day about transplants. You know, they, right now their law is that their, their policy is that if you have uh, to, to get a transplant, then you cannot use cannabis. Um, now the law has changed, and how do they navigate that? But they don't have any studies to show that it's safe. So, you know, I would love to see, you know, again, if the federal government would open this up, then we could study it. And um, so so those are the things that I that I would like to see changed. I would like it to be easier for patients to find a doctor that would be willing to recommend for them. Let me me, Desiree, let me interrupt right there, because I think that's an important part to talk uh, point to talk about that. There's a lot of uh, physicians around the state who are supportive of, you know, their patients using uh, medical cannabis, they think it can benefit, but there are still hurdles, right, for these uh, physicians. Right. They, uh, the current law, so that everyone knows, is that if a physician or a nurse and so forth wishes to recommend cannabis, they have to take a four-hour course, they have to pay a fee, they have to log on to this new system that isn't the most user-friendly, we'll say, and, and those are barriers right. for busy physicians who have a lot of patients. Uh, we only have a, a few minutes left. Talk to us about what your organization, the Utah Patients Coalition, is working on to tackle that problem in the upcoming legislative session to make the medical cannabis law even stronger to help these patients who are finding that their doctors are kind of saying, well, no, I'm not going to help you because this is too big of a barrier for me to worry about. 
Right, right. So the so the one of the changes that we're looking at making, I think the big one this year, is that we would allow the potential qualify sorry potential QMPs or um, to that would be your primary care physician or your nurse practitioner or something. They would write you kind of like a letter, like we've been doing with the letter system now, um, that basically says this is your diagnosis and this is and I agree that you should try medical cannabis. At that point, they would um, send it by email or fax, or you could take it into the the pharmacy, and then the pharmacist would um, be able to put you on the EVS. Which, and also these these physicians, they don't a lot of them don't want to do it because they just don't feel like they understand enough, um, or maybe they have a policy against it, or maybe they've got bad information, and so then those doctors could enter into a collaborative care agreement with the physicians at the pharmacy who really have become the, you know, specialists here in Utah about medical cannabis. They're, they're dealing with it every day. So they could they could work together to get the patients, you know, the right dose, um, right route. And then if any time the, the QMP or potential QMP could cancel that. Now, the the addition that was added was that the they're wanting to, the legislators are wanting to add a cap of 15. So they could only do 15, and then they do need to go take their, Q, their QMP course. They do need to do the four hours. They do need to pay the money and, and become an official QMP. But if they just wanted to write up to 15 patients, you know, if they just had a couple that they wanted to write to, they weren't, try, they weren't now having to send that patient out to doctor shop to find a doctor that didn't know them. We were able to keep them with their regular care physician, and that was always been the goal was, I'm hoping that this will keep patients with their regular care physician. It will give the, the, the primary care physician the information that they need to feel comfortable recommending cannabis to have kind of a hands-on yeah. collaborative care agreement, and, and I'm hoping that that will kind of open it up. So. And, and that's the tough thing. As you know, Desiree, working on this issue, you know, the voters kind of had a lot of strong feelings on this topic, and we were doing big mm-hmm. public campaigns, and everyone was weighing in, and everyone knew someone with – cancer, chronic pain, and so forth. And so there's strong feelings, but the devil's in the details. And it's, uh, you know, groups like ours and others who have to remain involved in working on those very specifics. So uh, kudos. Thank you, Desiree, for all you do at the Utah Patients Coalition for helping patients and improving the medical cannabis law. Thanks for uh, joining us today. Okay. Have a good day. Thanks. Well, uh, make sure to take us wherever you go. Listen live and on demand. You can download the KSL News radio app powered by Any Hour Services. Stick with us for the next segment, guys. We are going to be talking about some very fun stuff uh, and some controversial stuff, so you won't want to miss it. We'll see you on the other side of the break. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.